Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're discussing The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley, which is number four in our season seven of our 1983 Newberry Honor and Medal Award winners. And I have a citation. It's from the Newberry and Caldecott manual from ALA, from ALSC. Angharad crew is yanked out of an easy life on a homelander outpost and thrust into one of vigorous training for her prophesied role as the deliverer of the hill folk. She earns the right to carry the blue sword into battle, and with it, she heroically leads a small band of warriors against the non-human northerners. Well, that's an interesting summation. Okay, so backstory for anybody who doesn't know. This is one of my favorite authors in the whole world. Probably my actually very favorite author. And Jenny has never read this book before. So I'm really interested to know what your first impression was. So I I did like this book. Sure. I did like her writing, but it had the problem for me that I have with a lot of like high fantasy. Mm-hmm. which is this. I feel like often high, the book, if it's a high fantasy book, it's like I've been handed an intricate cage, like a bird cage, a beautiful bird cage, and I'm holding it in my hands and I have no way to look inside of it. So I can see it's beautiful. I know that it's beautiful. I know other people super appreciate it and love it, but I cannot look inside of it. I cannot get into it. I cannot penetrate it and find an opening where I feel like I am along for the ride. You know what? I actually understand that. Okay. Um, so, so she has written, Robin McKinley has written like boatloads of books and another one, the only other Newberry one is about sort of the, the legend in this culture about a, a woman named Erin, right? And so in the book that we're reading in The Blue Sword, Erin has happened in the distant past and she is like a legend. It's like King Arthur, right, for them. And I read these books in the wrong order. I read the Erin book first. And so that one's called The Hero and the Crown. And it's so good, but I feel like it informs this one so much that when you read this one for the first time, if you don't know what's happening sort of behind the scenes, you're missing out. Even though, like in the real world, this book was written first, the other book informs this one so much that I think that if you read this one first, like you, you're stuck with this sense of not not having access to to the backstory, to the to the real thing that gives it its essence. There's that issue, but also there is something about, and it's not that I don't like these books that are like this. I just can't get, like, I can't get into them so much that I find enormous amounts of joy in them. I know they give a lot of other people joy. It's There's something about the precision that it's written and there's all sorts of details, but there's something unemotional almost about it. And it's, again, it's a great story. It builds really well. It's written really well. It The characters are interesting. Although I have some questions about Korolath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And I do have some questions about some other things in it, and we'll get to that, but... I just feel like it's 
it's a cold, beautiful star that I see in front of me and I could walk and walk and walk and I'll never be directly underneath it. (laughs) Okay. That's fair. It's fair for me. I don't, I don't know. This is, this is my, like, this is my comfort fantasy world, right? (laughs) I was hesitant to reread this book because I know that when I do, I have to reread everything that I have that she's written, which includes like, modern, you know, vampire fantasy. It includes, like, Sunshine. Yes, thank you. Which is so good. Oh, my God. And, like, more short story collections set in this world and more, like, realistic fantasy and picture books. Like, her early picture book, My Father's in the Navy. I have everything she's ever written. I love her so much. And she has some incomplete things, but every time that I read this book, I have to read every single thing, even the incomplete stuff. And so I know that I'm always going to be left wanting more, which is a deterrent <laughs> reading everything. But it's like, it's like, there's some books that are yours. You know what I mean? Like there, are, there are certain things like if I wanted to pick the shoes that are mine, I would put on black converse. And if I wanted to write with the pen that is mine, like in my soul, it's a black fine point pilot pen. And if I want to read the books that are mine in that way, it's Robin McKinley's books. It's just, it's part of me. Right. And so it's hard for me to be critical because I guess if you're reading them for the first time, they could come across as cold and distant, but like I've read them so much and I love them so much that every time that I read them, it's like this delicious, wonderful treat, right? It's like this, I know, I know the like the richness that's behind it and I love them and they're, it's, it's such a creative and unique world building thing that she does that is still bound to some of her other books or short stories that are set in what we would consider the real world are still tied to this world that she builds here. Like in other short stories, it comes out that this is actually in the long ago past in sort of a sub-Asian continent. So it's actually set in this world in a fantasy way. I don't know. It's just, it's so good. Like, like, it feels so decadent and delicious to me that like every time that I start reading even like the tiniest short story, I have to read every single thing. And I think that's a lot of weight to take on as a new reader. I I mean, I have read, (laughs) I have read Sunshine and I've, I think I've read something else by her and I liked them. And I, I think that what you're describing, like, I definitely know what you mean by they're, they're your books. Like there are things that like impede, like to me, Francesca Lea Block, like it doesn't matter what she writes. I will always read it and I will always find something in it that reflects back at me. And, and that's kind of, but that's like, for me, that's like that post-punk LA fantasy speaks to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, I think it's a really good book. I like I don't think there's anything <laughs> wrong with it and I think that she's a great writer. You just don't love it the way that I love it. But there is a distance there and and to me it feels almost insurmountable. Like you know, I got I I knew I knew the story beats, I could follow that. Like I wasn't having any problems following it or the action or the motivations or the characters and 
it was just, it felt like there was a distance there. And, you know, maybe that, that melts away with more readings and maybe, you know, being more ensconced in that world, like I would get more out of it. But I also, it's hard for me to buy in to, to like reading, like supporting materials when I feel like, oh, this is this beautiful, delicious dessert for someone else. Yeah. You know, this is someone else's eclair and that's great. And I'm really happy for them. I'm happy for you, Marcy. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm really glad that you love the book. <laughs> I, I don't love it. Like, I like it, but I just, I, you know, but I think that's also just a function of the the genre for me, like, and why it's hard for me to, to really get into high fantasy unless there's something really else going on that mirrors or is, is like one of the genres that I hold so dear, like horror or mystery or, you know, some sci-fi stuff like that. Like I just, I feel like there's just no entry point. And then you have, and then for me, it becomes like almost trying to learn a different language with, with like different names for things. Yeah. And I start to get a little, like start to drift a bit because that is the the fantasy I do respond to are the ones that are kind of set with human rules, right? Or like the rules are immediately explained. So in some way, so like, I love Holly Black stuff, love it. And I would say her, like her last trilogy, you know, it was um, so good. <laughs> it was amazing. And I, that's probably high fantasy, but for some reason I buy right into that. Like there's something very, there's a sensibility in her stuff that, that automatically speaks to me. And again, that might be that kind of like a, a post-punk fantasy element where things are, I don't know the right way to describe it. It's like, no, I know what you mean. It's a, uh, shoot, what's that author who writes it's about a, like, it's, a grunginess. it's like a grunginess to it, but not like in a bad way. It's just, yeah, there's just, there's more like, it feels more like there's more humanity in it for me to latch on to. Well, and I, and I hate to keep going back to this, but I wonder if your experience would be different if you had started with the hero and the crown, because for me, that one is the more humanizing, like there's more emotion in it. Even though she's sort of like the founding of a legend, you know, and I just I don't know how much that informed my reading of this book. Like, there's no way to go back and experience it for the first time for the first time. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Like, it it probably helps a lot that I am a big, 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 big fan of fairy tale. And she's rewritten like boatloads of fairy tales. And those novels are so, so good. Even the ugly fairy tales like Deerskin she rewrote. And the whole foundation of that is basically a rape story. Um, And it's very unpleasant, but her writing of it is spectacular. And her favorite is Beauty and the Beast, which she has done two separate novels 25 years apart on. And I love them both. Like both versions are awesome. So it's also a little hard for me to separate her writing style and her sort of like literary personality from these stories, like to take them and separate them from the fairy tales because I love them both so much. Well, but that's the thing is I love fairy tales, like absolutely love them. But have and, you, but have you read any of hers? Um, I haven't read any of hers, I think. I don't think. So I think um, par- part of the reason I love her writing so much is because in her rewritings of these fairy tales, like I kind of fell in love with her voice. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I have lots of reasons why I love her. 
And so, but that, you know, you do bring up an interesting thing though, is because I don't know reading this, I don't, and reading Sunshine, which again, I, I liked, and it was about vampires and this is pre-sparkly vampires. These were actual vampires. I, we could talk for a long time about why I don't think the vampires in Twilight are actually vampires. I think there's some kind of parasite, blood-sucking parasites, but I don't think they're actually vampires because they don't fit up with, they don't really match with a lot of the vampire lore. But I think that that's, that might be one of the differences, right? That you and I both love fairy tales, but what are your favorite fairy tales? And whether, no matter what the treatment is, whether it's Robin McKinley writing it or not, like, what are your favorite fairy tales? Like, I love, I'm endlessly fascinated by Bluebeard. (laughs) I'm wondering, though, if there's something about the types of fairy tales that you and I like where we might like differing types, and that might be where the like the little little chasm lies. Yeah, maybe. It's definitely a possibility. I think that everybody has such these like little niche things that they love. Like We can like things in common, but the things that you love are so particularly you, you know, it, it's hard to differentiate. Harry Crew is a teenage girl who goes to live with some fancy people when her parents die. Um, yeah. Her brother is a is an officer in the army, and he arranges for her to go and be more or less adopted by Charles and Amelia. And she's now living a very fancy life in a fancy place that is unlike any place she's ever lived before. Yeah, so there's basically there's the homeland, which in this parlance is sort of England, and then she goes to live in the outland, which is it has sort of an India feel, but like a desert, uh, Western European feel, for sure. And she's living at this outpost that is surrounded by desert, and it's just like orange groves and dryness and different environment than she's ever known basically been left penniless when her dad dies, even though he, like, explained it to her and apologized and was like, I'm sorry, this is the way that, like, the law makes it. You know, your brother will inherit anything that I have, and he has to provide for you. He, I mean, he does, but he does by pawning her off. (laughs) (laughs) But, But the people who run the outpost are perfectly happy to take her in. They're so nice. They wanted a child. They don't have one. And so she becomes their, like, surrogate daughter. And, you know, it goes through that part really pretty fast. Like, that little backstory goes pretty fast. And then you find out that there's... Because the man who runs the outpost, Charles, he is also in, like, constant communication with, like generals and like the upper ups of, of, uh, the government. And, um, it becomes apparent that they're going to get, have a meeting with one of the big, big wigs. So they're kind of bracing for that. And this king of, of the outlanders comes and he has these weird, like effects on everybody where he seems sort of like magical or, with special powers or something, and that's just not something okay. they're equipped to deal with. Okay. Okay. How old is Corlath? Okay, I'm guessing 30s. Oh, God. I know. Okay. I know. Okay. Because Corlath comes for a meeting, and, like, it doesn't go well. 
And he and his, because he wants the the people at the outpost and their like battalions to join forces with him and his guys so they can fight the Northerners, which I'm kind of on the fence on whether or not the North, like the portrayal of the Northerners is kind of racist. Okay. Um, Well, here's another thing where having read the other book first makes a big difference because the Northerners... If you know what the Northerners are, which you would know from the hero in the crown, they're not people, right? And I get how to your reading that sounds racist, but it's not racist. It's just like they're not people. <laughs> what are they? They're demons. Like they're, 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 they're just, it's, it's sort of like. Uh, not spoiling anything. Just tell me. No, I know, but there's not a good way to explain it. Like literally they're demons. They have, they have weird, like they're evil they want to kill everybody they're made out of they're made out of wrong things okay and i get that to a modern interpretation that sounds racist but it's not about skin color or anything else it's just about like their essential nature okay so i'm glad that's in the other book because i did have serious questions about that and that's answered that question yeah no it's it's very evident in the other book so here's the first thing that i did kind of i was like what because there were some moments like that for me in this book even though i did like it and it was thought it was well written i'm sorry i feel like i have to keep saying that because i don't want you to think i hated it i just i have some questions your opinion you're allowed your opinion i know but i also know that this is like your one of your most beloved things and so i i just I, you know, I want to be magnanimous. You're, you're very sweet to me. Thank you. Okay. So, so Corlath, the meeting doesn't go well. And Corlath and his, and his guys are like on their way on the road back. And then he's like, wait, we're going to go steal that yellowed hair lady, but the girl, right. And they, he like creeps into the house in her house, creeps in the, into the outpost picks her up when she's asleep, whispers something on her head to make her sleep deeper, and then just, like, kidnaps her. This is true. Okay, so this is true. But <laughs> I feel like I just every time we say something in this in this episode, I'm like, but, okay. <laughs> but the thing is, okay, the way that it's explained, he has this, this power, right? It's called Keelar. And it's not that he has a superpower, it's it's that something sometimes overrides even his better judgment and and his physical capabilities. So sometimes he can walk through walls to do things, sometimes he can't. Sometimes sometimes he's overwhelmed with this impulse to do something and he doesn't know why and he doesn't even want to do it, but he has to do it. And that's what happens here. It's not like he's like, oh, I want to kidnap this girl, so I'm going to do it. It's more like, I can't stop thinking about this. I know what this is, so I have to do it. And that would seem misogynistic to me if it didn't happen to her later in the book, right? It's sort of a, it's sort of a across the board, if this thing is happening to you, this is what it's like. Yeah, but I also feel <laughs> I, 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 I mean, see where you're coming from. <laughs> he kidnaps a young girl and then grooms her, essentially. And then they get married by the end of the book. If somebody gave me an awesome horse and a sword, I would probably be okay with it, too. If he was 15 years older than you? <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to defend this. Because I love it. And I know that in ways it's problematic, but he is very respectful, like, to her. He does kidnap her, and they do get married. But 
he he gives her like the highest honor available in his culture. He doesn't ever ever like presume anything physically or actually in any way. Like he's always assuming that she's like hating everything and he's hating it too because he feels bad for what he did to her by stealing her. He never physically takes any liberties. He never does anything offensive that he can help besides actually stealing her. Like he gives <laughs> I, I I know that stealing her is terrible, <laughs> but like he doesn't he doesn't like assume anything. Like romantically, physically, like socially anything. He's always like, she's gotta be hating this. I feel terrible. What can I do to make it better? That's true. I just <laughs> you're just like um, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just that also kind of cast a little bit of a a shadow over it, where I was like, because I mean, honestly, like this is a Newberry bug, right? This is like, yeah, this is the uh, the oldest age is fourteen, right? And so you have in this Newberry book, you have a almost middle aged man, depending on how old the people in this culture slash world live like kidnapping a young girl and eventually <laughs> marrying her and impregnating her. Well, and I, and uh, I don't think that sounds I don't terrible. Think a, that sounds terrible. I know, but I, I think that it may have missed the mark with the age range. Like I, I do think that that is a possibility. It does feel like a YA book more than a more than yeah. a Newberry book necessarily. But this is before Prince existed, so I mean, I think there was a little bit of a wider scope. I feel I feel like there was leeway, and really, like I feel like the way they portray the small amount of romance that's in this book, she was the instigator of that. Like he, I feel like in the book he had romantic hopes, but like none of it was expressed. Nothing was like pushed on her or even offered to her until she was like, yeah, come here. But she's still 15. Then we get into issues of consent. She's not 15. She was 15 when the book started. No, she was like 20. Then how is this even a YA book? And how is she a ward of, of the the outposters? Well, things were different in those times. I think she was just an unmarried young woman in the house. She was not 15. Dude, then this isn't even, this isn't even a YA book. This is like no, new adult. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like she, no, she was older than that. She was old enough to be married. I don't know where I got that age from. I've said it for several times in the episode and we can't. We can't cut all of them out. It won't make sense. <laughs> no, no. So, she but, was not you know. 15. <laughs> she, because, I mean. Uh, okay, my impression. I mean, that makes, the, that makes the romance less icky, but then it makes, it really begs the question of why is this a Newberry book? It, it reads like a YA novel. I'll put yeah. it that way. And Prince did not exist at the time. But my impression has always been that she was like early 20s. Hmm. I thought she was a teenager because of the whole, like, she was the daughter they always wanted. Well, and, right, but, like, um, think about if you were, were like, things. in your if you were in your 60s and this, like, sad 20-year-old whose parents had died who had no place in the world. Like, you would still think of her as a daughter. It wouldn't matter that she's not, you know, 14. I mean, I wouldn't. I'd give her money and some eggs and be like... <laughs> 
eggs. If you need what? more. If you need more, like I'll help you out. But more eggs. You're not my daughter because you're like twenty something. They were very formal and very nice. Eggs. Eggs have a lot of protein. Okay. I'm so tired. I'm sorry. I'm tired too. It's okay. I don't know why I would give this poor woman eggs. I do think then we get into a whole discussion about like, like we already have the discussion about like how that works, that this is essentially a, it reads like a YA book, but it's an adult book. No, I, I don't argue that at all. Like it, it's appropriateness for the Newberry is not clear, except that in 1983, there weren't as many options and I certainly read this at a Newbery appropriate age and loved it. This is one of those books that I had before I knew what the Newbery was and loved and read and read and read and read and reread so many times that when I realized what the Newbery medal was and I started collecting them, I was like, yes, this is why I love these because the books are of such a good quality and such a an enjoyable reading experience that, of course, I would want to collect these, but... It didn't occur to me for a long time to be like, oh, right, does this actually qualify according to this very specific like list of qualifications? And considering that it goes up to, what, age 12? 14. Uh, 14. Uh, it is tough. I, I really enjoyed it at that age, but certainly the main character is not that age. Hmm. I don't know where I got that age from, but... Hmm. Okay, so, uh, so she's stolen... Not as scandalous as I thought because she was not 15 and Corlath is in his 30s, but she's not a teenager like I it, like I am inferred incorrectly. <laughs> well, my, my supposition so was still always, not good. No, but it's not it's not kidnapping and or statutory in nature. My supposition was always that she had sort of exceeded marriageable age at home and been like, OK, you're not going to get married here. Let's send you off to the other place. I mean, I got that part. I just thought that 15 maybe it got off. <laughs> okay, anyway. So she gets stolen, and they're expecting her to wail and cry and be awful about it. And she's just like, all right. Um, because she always, like, in her heart of hearts, wanted, like, an adventure. She wanted to go do something and, and not just stay at home forever. And... Everybody is a little relieved and she's a little confused. And they they have these little like tent towns on the desert as they're traveling. And then over time, she starts to understand their language and they give her this beautiful horse. And she's she the more they teach her, the more comes naturally to her and the more confused she is, not less, because she has no idea why coming from where she came from that this would come so easily to her like sword fighting and war horses and and everything related to this culture like she just takes to like a fish to water and she has no idea why and nobody will tell her why so it's both baffling and and kind of beautiful she just fits into it there's a lot of growth and there's a lot of learning and it's very interesting to see her change her perspectives and to also become kind of one of like, well, become one of the the group, one of Corlath's group essentially, but also the way she starts to bridge the gap between 
between the hill folk and the homelanders. Mm-hmm. They have all these little like ceremonies and cultural things. And during one of them, like she sees this vision out of a fire of a woman who has a blue sword. And she's just like overwhelmed. And it, it's confusing to her. And it, in a weird way, it sort of confers honor on her, like from the rest of the group of people. And it turns out that their most, most like beloved legend is Aaron in their in their past, who was a queen. And she wielded this blue sword and they eventually give her Harry this blue sword and she doesn't understand really why it's happening when it's all a little confusing and weird but it just feels right to her and when the sword comes to her like it sort of feels like a personality rather than a tool which is very high fantasy and I know it's very romantic but when you read it for me it just it's so lovely and I don't know, just what do you want to read? It's like, what do you want for the character to have? It's like a place of belonging when you felt alone their whole lives. And they have these sort of trials, the Leprin trials, where every year they have on this big sort of open field in front of the main city, these, it's kind of fighting battles, but it's kind of the Olympics where all of the untested fighters fight against each other to come up with like one champion and she doesn't even realize that she's being trained at first for that they just know that she just knows that they are training her to ride her horse and fight with the sword but she's better and better and better and better and finally they explain to her about these trials and they take her to them and she of course trounces everybody and then the final person she faces is Kortath the king and he slices off her belt and gives her what do they what do they call it crap but he slices off her belt and beats her and she gives him a little cut on the lip and she feels really bad about this not realizing that's like one of the highest honors that they have in their culture yeah so there's a lot of her kind of accidentally doing like fulfilling these prophecies and like doing these actions that like like giving the cut on the lip like bestowing this huge honor like accidentally and I found that a bit confusing. Like, I get it, but I also think, it, I mean, to just stumble into the situation and then act perfectly okay, not even perfectly okay, but like superlatively is really interesting to me, and it, but doesn't really feel truthful. Mm-hmm. I liked it just because like I've been in situations so often before where you're like I don't know what the hell I'm doing like I'm glad you guys like me but I don't know why (laughs) like I I could feel it you know like doing the right thing but not knowing why or how like with no instruction beforehand you're like I don't I don't know why you guys are approving this but but yay (laughs) this all builds toward a battle yeah, so she has the same Kilar power in her veins as the king, and nobody knows why, and she especially doesn't know why, but it's it's kind of pushing her and telling her that this one mountain pass is important in the coming battle, and nobody gets that, especially the king. And she keeps pushing it, and he keeps getting mad, and she keeps pushing it, and he keeps getting mad, 
and he will not pay attention to what she thinks is important. And she can't explain why she thinks it's important. And so she finally has this sort of blow up with him and is like, fine, I'm going to go off on my own. And she sleeps out by the fire outside of the tent that night and she takes her horse and she takes her sword and she goes. And she can't explain why it feels so important to her, but she just knows that she knows that it has to happen that way. And a couple people follow her and then a couple more people follow her and then she is heading toward the outpost. And when she gets there where she used to live, she finds the people that she used to know and jumps her horse over the gate and startles the hell out of everybody. And then a whole bunch of them follow her because she has this this thing with her, this like this power kind of. And it's partly her personality, but partly sort of just like the rightness of what she's doing. And they all choose to follow her to fight this battle in in this past that she feels is important. The king thought was just negligible. And it has a little bit of a Lord of the Rings feel to it, to me, at this point. Um, I... I stand firmly in the belief that George R. Martin owes her some royalties (laughs) for real for real yeah it it just has that like epic sci-fi like tiny force against evil tone to it right Mm -hmm. only only it works of course as as it does in those stories and she literally pulls down a mountain to defeat this indefeatable force that comes through unexpectedly so all the people that lived in the North who are not really people who are sort of like demony, multi-legged, malevolent things who are coming down to defeat the good people in the South. They're supposed to come through where the king is, where most of the army is, but instead come through this tiny pass, you know, to the South where she's been claiming it's very important and everybody's like, no, you're crazy, that nobody's going to come through there. It's fine. And she literally, since their army is so far too small to beat them, like sort of magically pulls down a mountain to avalanche onto them and kill them all and wins the day, which is definitely like a deus ex machina thing, but it's so nicely written. Like, I don't know. I love it. I really loved that part. I thought it was really powerful. I mean, obviously she pulls down a mountain, but I thought it was really powerful. And I thought it was really a great ex- a great illustration of like, you know, the power of one voice and the power of one person believing. And I, I did think that that was really well done. Yeah. And then after that's all done, her, her, her little like a band of of followers decides she's like you know what i'm in i'm in disregard you you should not come back with me we're not going to be in in favor with the king you you should just save yourselves the trouble and go home and they're all like no we're going to stick with you and they all ride back home and the king not only forgives her but has been wearing her like sash that she won in battle as a sign that like he loves her. Um, and so it's, it's not like a mushy romance book, but there's still like a, a little bit of it at the end. Um, well, now that I know she's not a teenager, I'm less grossed <laughs> out by it. So yes, 
So I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. No, no, no. I mean, you know, it was just one of those things. Like I, I, you know, I made some assumptions based on the text and the award it won. And yeah, I, you know, well, from that reading up from that reading of it, like that's this creepy. And no, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, even in the other books, like Aaron, who's the protagonist in the Hero in the Crown, falls in love with her cousin, who's due to be queen, who's due to be king, and he's like fifteen years older than her or so. Well, how old is Aaron? They don't say explicitly, but. Basically, when he was riding around learning to fight with the sword, she was in, like, a baby sack on his back. Oh, they knew each other? They're first cousins. Oh, they knew each other. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's that's a little problematic there. Um, I, well, that's... Uh, but again, um, okay. very long time ago. <laughs> I guess your options were limited. And yeah. I don't want to be judgy when, like, you only know four people and you have to propagate the species. But I, I mean, just, you know, I ha- I'm a modern person. And so there's <laughs> modern baggage that goes along with that kind of it's scenario. To- that's totally fair. You know, in, in later <laughs> books, in later Robin McKinley books, like, there's a, a princess who's in love with a with a pegasus. And... I'm still upset because she has not written second or third books to that. And so I don't know how that's going to resolve. Mercy, do you have any read-alikes? Okay, so for me, honestly, I love this book so much that all my read-alikes are just Robin McKinley books. So obviously, if you like this book, read The Hero and the Crown, which is another Newbery Honor book. But she has boatloads of other books. A lot of them are short story collections where, like, one story will be set in the same world. There's one called Water and one called Fire that she wrote with her husband. He's Peter Dickinson, who's another author, and they sort of alternated who wrote which story. But they're so good. And she wrote just so many other books. Beauty, Rose Daughter, Deer skin. Those are rewritings of fairy tales. Um, if you like her writing style, there's just so much to go on. If you, oh, I don't know. If you like her writing style, but you want something more modern, there is Sunshine, which is a vampire book about a girl who is a baker in a post-apocalyptic city when vampires and dark things have taken over the world. There's just there's no end to the delightfulness that she has. There's Pegasus. There is Chalice. You've probably got a good 20 books to read if you really like her writing style. So I'd like to compare her to somebody else, but there really is not anybody in my mind who's comparable to the fantasy world building and the kind of girl-centric heroine model that she has. Not to sound too gushy. (laughs) <laughs> gush away there's gonna be stuff that i am gushy on too so i mean i i appreciate it i very much appreciate it my read-alike is the bird king by g willow wilson and i believe it's it's an adult book but i think because the blue sword is essentially an adult book <laughs> yeah i think i think it's an okay thing to do as a read-alike it's a high fantasy story i had similar problems with kind of finding an entry point to it but i did eventually feel a bit closer to this one than i did the blue sword it's about a concubine named fatima and a map maker named hassan and 
Hassan is able to draw maps of places that don't exist and that he's never seen. Um, and so they end up going on this grand adventure with people who want to take Hassan's skills and maps for their own gain. And there's uh, queer elements and there's beautiful imagery and beautiful, well, not beautiful, but just really exciting adventure. So I, I recommend that one if you are on a high fantasy kick and want something along the same lines. I've never even heard of that. I can't wait to look into it. I think you would really, really like it, actually. Mm, I love high fantasy. Thank you for listening to this episode on The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley, one of our 1983 Newbery Honor books. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Sweet Whispers, Brother Rush by the great Virginia Hamilton. And it'll be our next to last episode before we get to the winner of this year. We'd love to hear your thoughts on High Fantasy and Robin McKinley and other books that fall into this genre that you love or maybe don't love. And so find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and tell us what you think. Also, rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening. It helps other people find the podcast and helps us keep going. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.